welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the center of Enterprise IT. Mike sends his excuses this week, but Zach, Lilac, and I are all here, all present and correct. And this week, we promise not to make anyone else feel old. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about feeling really old because we were young in the 90s. And several of us have received feedback that other people who were already not young by the 90s now don't like us very much. (laughs) Apologies. Your music was also good. Your computers were also good. We love you, really. But let's be clear. Whatever's happening now is a hot mess. Oh, yes. The the kids are not all right. (laughs) No, in fairness, I was listening to the iTunes new music selection, and there's some stuff in there that was... uh, uh, interesting, interesting. Oh, golly. See, that was a word that my father, shout out dad, used to say when something was a little bit awkward and uncomfortable and potentially not tasty. And he would be like, that is, that is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the height of his uh, political sensitivity right there. Um, So I'm just going to hope that uh, somewhere out there, whoever you were listening to uh, is not listening to your podcast thinking, interesting. The old guy thinks I'm interesting. No, it was interesting in the positive sense as well. It, it was Some of it was good, uh, but all of it was, I would not be comfortable explaining this to anyone else who walks into the room right now. That, that's what I mean by interesting. <laughs> Awkward. Indeed. But the flip side of that is, I don't know about the two of you, but I've recently had the experience uh, of... Finally, for the first time in my career, repeatedly not being the youngest person in the room and the most junior person and suddenly finding it flipped around to being one of the elder states people and people looking to me to be the responsible one. And I'm not comfortable with that, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) That's fascinating, Dominic. So I, in my last role, I was one of the old people. I was in a, a marketing team filled with delightful youth and I was and I turned 40 in that job and it was, I was old. Like I felt super like I should be maybe shopping for grave sites. And, um, and now I work for a company whose tagline is legacy powers legendary. And um, I would just tell you that I now feel the blush of youth anew in most contexts. There you go. It's all about context. That's right. Zach, are you, uh, how do you fall on this spectrum of oldness? Well, you know, I I find myself quite often thinking, wow, what, what happened to the years right now? I am the elder statesman, it seems like. Um, no, it's good as long as you're surrounded by some, you know, some bright, young, innovative, um, you know, talent or people, right? Um, I think that also comes down to, you know, you know what? Yeah, no, it's, I, how do I feel about it? I think it's great, right? It's good to see. I don't know, though, if there's enough young generation uh, coming up through the IT field. Do you think there is? Do you see a lot of that? I mean... Out of curiosity. I always felt, even 20 years ago, though when I was graduating from business school, now 20 years ago, I started business school, um, which is horrifying. But I even at the time, the enterprise IT was not a place for youth, right? Like it was sort of really profoundly uncool, which is why it worked for me, I think. Um, but I don't, I didn't recall, there's very few of us, I can, I, I know most of them from my class, but that that ended up in this domain, and so no, I don't. I actually don't think that we have a good feed, even on the business side, um, into enterprise IT from uh, from the younger generations. Partly because, candidly, it has no draw. It's just so esoteric if you're not already half into a data center. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. And, you know, I say that from my perspective. I mean, maybe if I'd worked or maybe if I, you know, worked in a, uh, a cloud environment, you know, maybe if I worked for AWS or Azure Stack, you know, maybe yeah. it'd be different. Or if I was at a, a cloud partner or even one of the many, you know, AI startups, it'd probably be a little bit different. But even that looks different than it would have looked, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. But I, I was just curious. So, yeah, I I think it's great. You know, as long as we're able to pass it down and keep the thing moving, I think it's all it's all good. Yeah, and so do you think that's what happened to IBM with their cloud efforts? As uh, there was this interesting piece in Protocol that's made a bit of a stir, uh, criticizing, uh, well, basically drawing that gravestone that Lilac was talking about, <laughs> how IBM lost the cloud, and I do wonder how much of it was simply that. You know, young college graduates, uh, up and comers with interesting ideas, just don't go to IBM. And they tried to buy in the talent, and but tried a couple of times. In fact, the soft layer and then Verizon cloud acquisitions, and it didn't work out. And you know, on paper, they had most of the ingredients, but you have to wonder how much of it was culture rather than tech. My feeling is that the cloud story is actually one of the few that truly fits the model of disruptive innovation that's recently happened. We throw those words around a lot. But I think if we recall, if we can cycle back to the time, Dominic, when you and I were working together and, and we talked about public cloud as kind of a risky place, the vector against which it was weaker than on-premise computing, which IBM has always been traditionally incredibly strong at, Public cloud was weaker on security, on compliance. We were all concerned that all of our data was going to be just shared with the world. And and in fact, Google would say things like information should be free. And that would like strike fear in the hearts of everyone. And so that me that whole mechanism of disruptive innovation is that something comes in that, that might be cheaper or easier, but also isn't on par with the alleged industry quality level, serves a different market and ultimately grows up and, and overtakes the prior generation of technology. This felt exactly like that kind of situation. Now, if I'm at IBM, how many choices I'm gonna, am I going to make to make a substandard product, particularly on the metrics of enterprise grade? That's just off-brand. That's the, the thing that struck me. As back when, I mean, anyone who knows us can use a LinkedIn search bar can figure out Lilac and I were at BMC. BMC had a cloud lifecycle management product. But I, I would still say today that what we were trying to do and what BMC was trying to do, the, the market that BMC was trying to address was not Greenfield. You're a new startup. You've got a couple of MacBooks covered in stickers, and now you need to offer services to the world. What are you going to do? Are you going to buy a building and fill it up with Cummins generators and Sun servers? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Or, <laughs> right, it seems ridiculous to say that today. Uh, or are you going to give your credit cards to Amazon? And that was not the market BMC was going after. BMC was going after the market of, you already have a data center, probably several data centers. How do you operate those in a manner that is you know, more efficient, more consistent with self-service modes that people are starting to come to expect? How do you maybe integrate some resources from Amazon or whoever into that model. And so that made perfect sense from the point of view of a management vendor. From the point of view of an IBM, though, that's that's death. It's relegating you to, to the corner. So at that point, I think IBM had two choices. It was either double down, rerun the playbook 
of the, basically the mainframe continue to uh, to lean into the disruption, to be the disruptee and take that top end of the market and just stick with it and not try to chase after the unprofitable low end, leave that to others and just try to ride that wave as long as the momentum kept going. I mean, in fairness, the momentum in mainframe is decades long. This isn't yep. a bad strategy. Exactly, exactly. And instead they tried to be cool. And that's, that's not what we want. I don't know. Blog. I don't know that that's true. I don't perceive that. And I, I sort of we we're strong IBM business partners, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be sort of delicate. But I actually perceive that they're looking to meet a different part of the market that might be just less cool, right? And that there is a part of the market that is interested in mainframe or traditional workloads in in cloud that is interested in certain kinds of assurances and confidential computing and all these other elements of their cloud, they're looking essentially for high-end cloud um, with all of the benefits that an IBM type organization provides. I just think that that narrative is far less punchy in the market, right? And so we we have this, the skinny jeans AWS developers with the dreadlocks, you know, definitely dominating the cloud narrative. And that's lovely, but I, I, I would actually, I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually a, a consistent need at the high end of the cloud market, just as there is a consistent need at the low end of the cloud market for clouds that have the le a level of customer support. It's not low end with respect to price, but it's low end with respect to a customer base that cannot keep a fleet of cloud deployment engineers on staff needs a different kind of service level from their vendor as well. Correct. No, I agree entirely. That's exactly what I was saying with different words. Uh, oh. There is, there there is a need for what we used to call the white glove service, and there will continue to be for a very long time at the top end of the market. And right now, that's also where a lot of the the profit is. Certainly on a per customer basis, the customers at that end of the market are orders of magnitude more profitable. There's so many angles to this. If you think about it, I mean, I you know, look at Microsoft. They've been around a while. We always forget that. You know, they're. They're not the new kids on the block. They were able to, to pivot and, okay, were they a hardware company? You can debate that. Definitely were a software company, but they were able to, to pivot right into the cloud and they, they've done a great job. I think IBM, in my opinion, just from the outside looking in, I don't think I have the perspective you have, Lilac. You, you deal with them closely, but just from an outsider's perspective, they have a culture, a brand problem. I think their buyers are mostly retired or, or not in the right spots anymore to make those decisions. You know, in IT departments, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they were the heart of technology. They did make those decisions. They don't really do that today. I mean, they're not talking to the same, you know, um, uh, you know, members of the organization that are outside of IT or even talking to them at all, really. Um, and then I look at Dell. So if you say Microsoft's a bad example, look at Dell. They don't, they don't, you know, have cloud and they didn't go into cloud, but they did own what they do, right? And then they brought their company back in from being public and spun it back out and they acquired VMware. Um, you know, they own VirtuStream, Zach. That's a cloud. Yeah, exactly. And between that and VMware. But I think we're all talking around the same thing. It's different markets. It's different buyers. If you're going after the individual developer with a credit card, IBM is going to be a very poor fit for, for that type of buyer. And they would have needed a complete brain transplant to get to that person, which for you know very good reasons, the organizational antibodies prevented IBM from going through the sort of transformation that would have been required to get to that person because it would have meant giving up everything that made IBM good. Well, do we have an anti, do we have an antitrust issue here then? And at least in the U S uh, you know, look what's going on in the department of defense between Azure and, and AWS, you know, 
giving it to, to one, pulling it back now because the other one was threatening to sue. I mean, do we have this, you know, uh, you know, three players, you know, if you include GCP, I mean, no one else is really able to break into this. I mean, they, they literally own it all down packed. I mean, yeah, you have some local infrastructure as a service, some local colos, but. Well, look at Cloudflare though. Cloudflare is stepping in now. And I did love the little detail, the Cloudflare launching R2, which is of course one less than S3. <laughs> Does the naming there is top notch, but specifically they've honed in on the one major pain point for practitioners of existing cloud services, which is the egress charges. People complain about the lock-in; your, your data can check in, but it can never ever leave because it costs you know several cents a gigabyte, and you can't afford that. And that's uh, going to be a new terrain of competition. And Cloudflare has just blown that wide open. They've been very carefully, very quietly building up a service that I think is going to be very compelling. Uh, antitrust is very hard to actually execute. Um, and, and antitrust is very hard to execute and, and prove in market. It just, I remember when, you know, again, 15 years ago, VMware, you could argue, had a quite a monopoly lock on the hypervisor market. Like, and it was well before Hyper-V was anything more than a, an interesting punchline to a joke at a conference. And like, we're, here we were, and there was, there was literally no action, right? I, I think- And meanwhile, all it, the BSD graybeards are over in the corner going, jails, jails. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I, you know, somebody has to choose to litigate it. Somebody has to decide to pursue it. And then proving it in a three-player market is just, a lot harder than a one-player market. Um, and, and VMware got away with all kinds of interesting shenanigans, bundling everything in with the hypervisor. They took the Microsoft playbook and, you know, executed it. I, I don't know to what end um, necessarily, but um, but I, I think it's just, we really don't resort to litigation situations as often as sometimes I think those of us in the market maybe would like to see there be a little bit more risk there. It's it's evolving. I think it's just how does it how will it evolve? I I do yeah. think you know it's hard to prove, but you know the times are different than they were ten to fifteen, even five years ago. And uh, I think now they're they now they're not going to be in trouble. But you know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, does Amazon spin out AWS? What happens there? Um, you know, Microsoft somehow gets to sit at home on some of these uh, hearings, right? That have gone on the last couple of years. They've really done a good job of saying don't look this way. But uh, as far as IBM goes. I think Software had potential. I, I, I don't know that I ever expected much to come out of that. I just think that, um, you know, IBM's got, you know, they've got to answer some questions here soon. And, and they're not alone. I mean, you have companies like Cisco, 250 or actually over a $300 billion market cap. You know, 20 year, 21 years ago, they were the, you know, highest, uh, most, what is it, highest value of, of any company, right, market cap wise. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, they're in the same boat, right? They don't have a cloud solution. They're just, you know, they're making it easier to operate in that environment. And as far as you know, the data and the cost, I don't think it's slowing people down. I think you know they got to get around the data, but that's why these cloud companies are now coming on prem. So, you know, I think about IBM and their cloud solution. I mean, it's almost like they were two steps behind, not even one step behind, with some of their, you know, you know, cloud on prem and 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 just pivoting. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what I don't know. Well, I like you're closer to that than I am, but I. 
I don't see. No, no, hang on. You say, you say Cisco doesn't have a cloud solution. I just went to cisco.com/cloud and there's a whole <laughs> webpage there They're talking to me about unified well, computing systems and all they, sorts. They they have a cloud. I, I shouldn't they don't, they don't have a cloud. They're not a cloud, right? Yeah, you're right. They have solutions. They're taking that, you know, the old BASF thing, right? We don't make the cloud, we make the cloud you use better, right? And then that is a legitimate market position. The go-to-market associated with being a cloud vendor it must be horrifying. The go-to-market associated with being an arms dealer to cloud vendors is, you know, much easier. Very easy. Yeah, there's 50 target accounts, and you pay those reps a lot of money. Because that's the point. Exactly, it's a completely different motion. That's why the enterprise vendors, by and large, with the asterisk exception of Microsoft have not been successful in in this world because their sales force is geared up to sell to a small number of deep-pocketed organizations and you land a large deal and then expand from there and have a multi-year relationship unless something goes very badly wrong. And cloud, public cloud, is not like that. It's it's self-service or very limited hands-on work. Uh, otherwise, the economics simply don't work out, and the, the reflexes just aren't there. It's there. It doesn't work if you try to do it that way. Uh, there is enterprise cloud sales now, though, right? Like they, they, Amazon finally uh, sort of acquiesced to that about five or six years ago, where they said, you know, actually, we can understand how maybe a Fortune 100 would like to have a conversation and maybe buy in bulk. A phone number that they can pick up. Uh, so yeah, yeah. shocking. Um, and, and like not just for support, but for sales. And there was also those of us partners jumping up and down and screaming for this. Yes. They came around to it and Google came around to it. And they all have enterprise sales teams at this point. Um, but I would, I would not at all be surprised if, if it was a very pointy triangle where there was a top 100, 200, 500 accounts that were being managed that way. And literally everybody else, oh, like, yeah. welcome to your ticketing system. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, and without giving anything away, we disclosed this in our last results. MongoDB is exactly the same way. We have a, a very pointy triangle with uh, the six figure plus accounts at the top and then, 90 plus percent down the bottom. Also, culturally, developers like self-service. They like hands-off. They like not having to pick up the phone and talk to someone. Give them pricing on the website. Give them a place to enter their credit card. Give them an easy way to terminate service if they don't like it. Developers are mostly happy. And of course, if something goes wrong, you need a way to get support. And enterprise people have a completely orthogonal set of requirements they need to go through you know compliance and legal and redline the msa <laughs> there's a lot of uh, hand holding part of this conversation i think is also about the increased standardization back when we were talking about multi-cloud management a big thing that uh, people would throw against us was it's not possible to do that because you know your units are measure are different the services offered are different by not committing to one vendor you're restricting yourself to lowest common denominator service that's common to all vendors, which is true to an extent. And the conversation has moved on in interesting ways. The cloud has changed how people consume technology. Uh, anybody, right? IT, outside IT, anybody in the business consumes technology and even at home, right? And how we develop. There are a lot of startups that are built on AWS's cloud. And so they're enabling a lot of innovation themselves. Um, I think the marketplace has changed the game and then the channel has changed drastically. I mean, this is, I keep saying this, you know, we all know this is this whole world out there. And so, you know, for some of these companies that have been around a while, it's, it's probably hard for them to, you know, to, 
uh, to adjust to that perhaps. Right. But yeah, you're right. I mean, when you go to consume these, there's, there's marketplace, there's, you know, this whole world of partners, this channel community that's focused more on, you know, the professional services side. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, and it's going to continue to change, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. I, it's always going to be the big three for now. And really it comes down to the big two, but, uh, I, I will see what happens in the future. We will indeed. Well, on the consumer end of things, uh, there was an interesting EU uh, decision about standardizing everything on USB-C. And everyone saw this as aimed at uh, Apple and getting rid of their proprietary Lightning standard. And so, I mean, obviously this is completely different, but it's, uh, it's also kind of the same if you're giving up on differentiation and you're standardizing on one you are also giving up on the possibility of meaningful differences. Uh, so Lightning port, for example, is a lot more waterproof than USB-C. The USB-C situation is also a mess. Let's, let's talk about trying to buy a specific USB-C cable that is capable of uh, whatever you require, a specific type of power delivery or a specific rate of data transfer. I think this is just... Much as I love the EU, I think this is misguided. Weighing in and saying, you know, there shall only be this standard, it's uh, not a good move. And on the other hand, we have had positive examples of standardization that have stuck around long past what their expected sell-by date is. The example I always go to is RJ11, you know, the RJ11 phone jack. That's been around for, I don't even know, I should have looked this up before the show, but decades, my entire lifetime, there have been RJ11 jacks, and you can still plug something manufactured today into an RJ11 jack that's older than I am. And so, you know, the thing on the end of the RJ11 cable is probably doing something vastly different with ADSL that's 250 megabits or something like that, that wasn't even conceived of when the RJ11 standard was laid down, but it's running over the same copper wires. So, you know, I, I do get the impulse to legislate in the telco world. I just think that in this case, the standards have not yet settled down in much the same way as in the cloud. I could see a day sometime from now when things have settled down to the point where you can say, you know, a VM in AWS, a VM in Azure, a VM in Google Cloud should be equivalent and we're going to legislate. They have to expose these APIs or whatever. We're not We're not there yet. I don't think we're there yet with phone connectors. Maybe this is just me being too much in the Apple world. What, what do you think, you people who've drunk less of the Apple Kool-Aid than I have? I think they're definitely targeting Apple. That's, that's apparent. They can say they're not, but uh, they most definitely are. So I, I don't know. I think... Uh... I don't agree with it. Not that I agree that, you know, Apple should be um, doing things a little differently, but let the free market decide, let the consumer decide, um, you know, I don't, I don't know why it matters to the EU. I mean, it's funny how part of their, their reasoning is, is around, you know, going green or the environment. It seems like as long as you mention that you're safe, right? Like, okay, this is our reason we're good. I, but, you know, definitely they're targeting Apple and, um, I don't know, you know, let, like I said, let, let the market decide. I, I like a lot of the things they've done in the EU to protect people from their privacy on down, but uh, this I don't agree with. Yeah, I'm with you exactly, Zach. I feel like this is these kinds of things where the standard is still evolving and, and 
these standards have been changing, honestly, like you're measuring it in months, right? You're not measuring it in decades. Um, the market is still able to introduce new innovation, able to make change. This is not a place for rigidity. Now, I understand why phone standards in 1952 made sense, um, but sort of just I don't think this is that same domain at all. I don't think there's an inner connectivity mandate that is nearly as um, as as important. I don't think there's a there's a reach problem. I think this comes down to uh, an interference in the actual market. And and as you say, Zach, it's not like something like GDPR where we need to protect the populace from the behaviors of corporations. Um, which I genuinely find there's there's obviously room for. Companies can't be trusted to make all the right moral and value choices um, when they are presented with a profit motive and not not consistently, as we have seen. But I don't think there's any moral high ground or low ground here at all. These are connectors into phones. Exactly. And, you know, my iPad has a USB-C uh, connector, but that was added for a very good reason. So it can talk to uh, monitors and things like that which an iPad Pro might legitimately need to, and an iPhone, not so much. There, yeah. Um, some frantic Googling. Uh, the Register Jack standard goes back to Bell Labs in 1973, so there you go. It's funny. Almost everything goes back to Bell Labs. It's almost like you guys shouldn't have broken them up. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Sorry, Lilac, we, we're both on the same page. Dominic, I, yeah, it's interesting to... To see this and what's next, you know, I mean, Apple's, um, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I, 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 I love their products. I mean, they're good products, right? But I do think they do some things I don't like. But again, it's, it's a free market thing. What a big company Let doesn't. Exactly, exactly, exactly. They have market power, right? They, they, they have market power. And so does Google, by the way, with the Android platform. They might not have it with the device. And, and people are going to play these markets differently. And we can... We can dislike the notion of market power, but at that point, we have to question what it is that we want out of capitalism and the free market, if that's the situation, right? Because essentially, every business student knows that what you're meant to do is amass market power so that you can be more profitable. Now, I do think that there are controls in this world that need to keep us from becoming just complete assholes and treating the employees poorly or treating customers poorly or, or disadvantaging the equity in the world and all these other very large and important topics. But I'm not sure that it actually uh, has any applicability at this particular level of granularity. And my feeling is that somebody found a way to exercise a, a more um, directed vendetta <laughs> and found a series of convenient excuses to make that so. Yeah, and I think it's all going to be moot anyway. By the time this comes into force, everything will have gone to wireless connections anyway. My headphones are wireless. My iPhone charges wirelessly. I honestly cannot remember the last time I plugged my iPhone into something. So <laughs> who cares what connector it has? It's all fine. But on that happy note, uh, I am extremely happy to report that I'm going back to an in-person event. I'm going to fly to London. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to see people face-to-face -face in three dimensions with legs and everything. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Uh, so if you are in the London area on the 9th of November, you should come down to mongodb.local.london. It's uh, in Battersea. It's a hybrid event, so if you're not local, you can also attend remotely. But if you are going to be in the area, then you should absolutely attend in person. 
And I have a 50% discount code for podcast listeners. So it's Dominic Wellington 50. And I will put that in the show notes as well. So happy birthday, Dominic 50 already. 50 already. That's why I'm feeling old. <laughs> How about you two? Do you have anything in particular to recommend? Um, I actually, we have a customer conference next week here at Rocket. It's called Evolve. Um, it was associated with ASG before we acquired that delightful organization earlier this year. Um, I'm actually doing a session on data intelligence next week. And if you're interested in attending, feel free to reach out to me directly. Um, I'm sure our email addresses are in the show notes, but um, otherwise you can check it out at ASG's website or Rocket Software's website. Nothing from my side. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to hearing when you do have a recommendation. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Uh, as ever, a great conversation. And we look forward to talking to you all again next week. And with any luck with Mike, assuming he's got his voice back. Talk to you then. Thank Thanks, you. everyone.